Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with an Italian conductor who is equally at home on the concert stage as he is in the Opera House. He has held title positions in Italy, France and Germany, and in July 2021, he started as the music director of the Lyric Opera in Chicago. It's a great pleasure to welcome Enrique Mazzola. Enrique, lovely to see you and to chat with you and to meet you. How are you? I'm fine. It's um, a very strange summer for me because it's uh, actually an English summer and I'm not very used to these uh, frozen temperatures of uh, England uh, during summer. But yeah, what... um, it's, it's very beautiful. There are a lot of flowers. That I have to be very sincere. I love it. <laughs> and you're in uh, East Sussex working at Glyndebourne at the moment, which is a lovely part of the world to be in. Um, it's raining in Birmingham today. How is it there? Is it a nice... A nice morning. It's uh, raining uh, as well. Mm. Uh, quite uh, cold. I mean, for summer time is quite cold. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Um, we will come back to Glyndebourne and opera and uh, everything else to do with your career and conducting. I read that you were born in Spain, but actually call yourself an Italian conductor. Um, and you studied at the Giuseppe Verdi Milan Conservatory. I have no idea what instrument you studied or whether you studied music at all, um, whether you can study just conducting. How did music first come into your life? Were you born into a musical family? That's correct. So uh, both, uh, let's say, my families, the Spanish one when I was born and the Italian one which uh, raised me uh, were both uh, musicians' families. So in some way it was my destiny to be a musician, although I have uh, a brother and a sister who are not uh, musicians. So it's not that obvious that uh, a musician uh, family necessarily produces (laughs) uh, musicians. And uh, but let's say that yes, for myself uh, the influence of my uh, families was very strong, especially um, the Italian one, because mm. my father was a coach and prompter at La Scala in Milano, uh-huh. and uh, so I had um, the major singers in the world at home for uh, uh, non-formal dinners every week. Uh, um, then when I was seven, I started singing in the children chorus of La Scala. So, I mean, it was, La Scala was my, my life, my, mm. my family, my home. Yeah. yeah, your second home. So singing came first. Um, instruments, did you uh, gravitate um, towards a piano or something else? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would say that singing and violin oh, good. came um, uh, first. So my teacher was uh, uh, the principal viola of La Scala, Mm. Maestro Burattin. Uh, I I never mention him and I have a special pleasure to uh, mention Maestro Burattin, who is not uh, anymore uh, with us uh, now, but he was very uh, patient, extremely patient with me (laughs) because I I was not really a very good violinist. I wasn't. (laughs) Um, And that's why uh, immediately in parallel study uh, started uh, uh, piano studies mm. in yeah. parallel with uh, with violin, yes. And uh, let's say when I was uh, 13, you know, this uh, 
age uh, in which uh, teenagers want to do different things. They have a big crisis. Actually, I went through uh, a big uh, crisis. Um, that is exactly what happened to my brother and to my sister. When they were 12, 13, they stopped piano, they stopped everything. So I yeah. was very near to do this. When uh, I had the possibility to enter in the class of composition in the Conservatorio Giuseppe Verdi of uh, Milano. And uh, these uh, composition studies really saved uh, uh, me because I enter with all my heart, my mind, my soul uh, into a passion on writing double choruses, fug fugues and uh, um, <laughs> contrapunct, uh, really, really uh, books and books and books and books of, uh, of me writing uh, this exercise. It was a sort of, uh, yeah, I say in operatic terms, a sort of redemption for, for me <laughs> because uh, I never worked so hard the violin and the piano, so I felt myself always a little bit guilty. Okay, I never work enough. And then with the composition, I was really writing so much music, so much music, and I felt happy. <laughs> I liked it. I liked, uh, I liked uh, this combination of uh, rules and... Uh, the magic uh, aesthetic result of you can do through a series of uh, uh, very uh, strict rules, which yeah. in some yeah. way marked uh, my own style of uh, conductor uh, today. Yeah. These are my basic <laughs> rules when I conduct the bel canto, for example. Yeah. yeah. Um, fascinating that uh, composition took over. Did you, before you, you know, you sort of, um, left the violin playing world. Did you play in orchestras or, or, or even as a singer? You know, when was your first encounters with uh, conductors? And did it at all at that stage enter into your head to conduct in the future? Well, um, actually, with my very first opera, when I entered in the children chorus of La Scala, yeah, it's where when everything happened. Right. So it was Wozzeck by Alban Berg. The conductor was Claudio Abbado wow. in the Giorgio Streller uh, staging. And I entered to sing in the children chorus. So what happens? The children chorus is in the end of Wozzeck. Ringel, ringel, Rosenkreins, ring. There is this kinder uh, children uh, uh, song oh, and there yes. is the innocent yes. uh, son of Maria at the end singing hop, hop, Oh, yes. Oh, oh, and there's a very, how can I say, it's a huge responsibility on this uh, kid singing these last notes, which are quite difficult to take this, uh, this interval uh, at the end, uh, because closes the, the, the opera, this, yeah. uh, this solo. And I remember Maestro Bado coming in our uh, chorus rehearsal room and saying, OK, today we are going to select the solo for the finale. Okay. Because it was not decided. So he started with one, oh, uh, no, 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 another. No, no, then he came in front of, of me. And I was new. This was my first day in Teatro La Scala. And I sang, up, 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 and say, I want you. <laughs> so from day one, I became a, a solist in the, in the chorus. And then what happened? So I answered to the second part of your question. That... Yeah. Uh, uh, you know that uh, um, 
artists, they have to arrive much before they sing in the opera. They cannot arrive in the theater 10 minutes before no. they part. So practically, I had to be all Wozzeck, all, all the opera there. And I was listening to this opera. And the most uh, magical, please remember, it's a kid of se it's a seven years old kid. Mm. Seven years old kid. Imagine this. So I was taken uh, by a person in the backstage to wait for my entrance. And the, in the backstage, I was watching uh, this strange person through the black and white monitor, yeah. waving his uh, hands. And uh, I could uh, hear live from the backstage the effect of this magic uh, wave uh, movement. Very beautiful, very magic. Black and white monitors means I could see only a quite pale uh, Abado uh, face, the small triangle of the white triangle of the uh, shirt, yeah. the beginning of the sleeves uh, white, and the white uh, baton. Uh, yes. And all the rest was black. And, uh, you know, there is this big interlude before the, the final with this huge crescendo. I was, this music went really in my guts, this music. And uh, uh, performance after performance, it, uh, one idea became clear in my mind. It was a child idea, but it was a very clear idea. I'm quite stubborn, you have to know. <laughs> I said to myself, I said to myself, I want to do in my life what this man is doing there. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Period. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, a, a, one man, Claudio Abado, you know, what a, what a person to be inspired by. At what point uh, of your life, and I'm assuming it would be at the Milan Conservatory, did you decide to conduct? And were you taught by somebody at the Milan Conservatory? If so, who? Um, how did conducting first really start to happen for you? So to have access to the class of uh, conducting in the old rules of Giuseppe Verdi Conservatore in Milano, uh, you needed to have a uh, completed the seventh year of composition. Wow. So the studies of composition in, uh, in, uh, in my times were very tough. Ten yeah. years. The course was ten years. Wow. So, and the big exams was fourth year, seventh year, and tenth year for the diploma. Yeah. So the last three years, eighth, ninth, and tenth, were in parallel with, with the three years of uh, conducting. Yeah. But without the, let's say, uh, mini diploma of the seventh year, I could not access to mm. the class of conducting. That's why I also study, studied composition. So I had access in the class of Daniele Gatti, ah. uh, who was uh, uh, for a very brief uh, time... Uh, uh, actually in the class because he was so busy that there was, there was always uh, somebody else to, to teach. And actually I did my diploma not with uh, Daniele because he was not there, but uh, with uh, somebody else. Still, I was, let's say, officially in his conducting uh, class. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, in the Conservatorio of Milano, there was a, a, a special... Uh, uh, course of uh, um, 
opera conducting yeah. by a very, 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 very old uh, uh, Italian, extremely traditional and routine conductor, Umberto Cattini. But uh, uh, I would say that uh, the two classes, yes, uh, Cattini and uh, Gatti, were, how can I say, so different that uh, every information for me was vital and uh, useful. Mm. And of course, the first conducting was in Conservatorio. I remember we did uh, uh, a Suor Angelica mm. in, uh, in uh, Conservatorio. We did a Paisiello, La Serva Padrona. But, uh, I mean, the, at my time, the possibility of... Uh, working with an orchestra during the studies was very, very, very difficult. I mean, it doesn't work like now in the in these big institutions like Royal College of Music, like uh, Juilliard, where you can have an, uh, an orchestra every week. So we had an orchestra once in six months. <laughs> uh, and an orchestra mixed of uh, teachers and uh, and uh, students with uh, sometimes uh, five clarinets uh, and no bassoon and uh, you know this kind of situation. So it was very yeah. it was very difficult. So I I cannot say that uh, the conservatorio really prepared uh, conductors to be uh, conductors. I mean we did the good studies, and I have to say that. Uh, uh, my class actually uh, produced uh, uh, many mm, very good uh, conductors uh, working today. So there is me. In my class, there was Gian Andrea Noseda. Wow. There was uh, Paolo Arrivabeni. Uh, there were Daniele Calligari. I mean, really many, many. Uh, and uh, uh, a little bit later after, after me, Bizanti. And uh, I mean, a, a lot of uh, really conductors conducting today. So actually, it was a, a very good uh, class, I have to say. Uh, I mean, uh, what's interesting about this is that often when I speak to conductors on the podcast, they will say that they had two teachers or two teachers at the same time. And, and they've, they've always been very happy about this. And usually when I dig a little bit deeper, I find out that one of them was very much more into stick technique uh, and the other one was into the, the score study or the musical study of the scores. Uh, it was that how it sort of worked. I'm imagining that uh, having seen Daniele Gatti teach and masterclasses with the Concertgebouw, that uh, he's a bit of a mixture of both. But can you put your finger on, if I had to ask you where you think you got your stick technique from, would it be from Gatti or would it be from Umberto? Um, uh, so, let's start uh, with uh, the bad information I can give you. Okay. So, I think I was the worst student of Daniele Gatti. Okay. <laughs> really. Uh, he was so tough with me. Really, yeah. <laughs> really so tough with me. <laughs> uh, we were in the class, we were discussing, I know, formal structure and so, and then I remember sometimes I was saying, yes, but I think, shut up! <laughs> and, uh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, I, I really felt uh, that, uh, okay, I, 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 was, I was not probably the, yeah, the, the best student in his class. But um, also there is, a, uh, I think, a reason. In some way, uh, I remember that uh, in the class there was uh, a sort of competition mm. 
to see who could imitate Daniele better. Okay. Really, in the yeah. posture, in the arm, uh, and uh, and uh, actually, I was only interested on the informations he could give me, and uh, I wanted to elaborate it uh, in yeah. a very personal uh, way. So my also my classmates saw in me a sort of uh, how do you say in English pecora nera, a black sheep. Uh, oh yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, in, in the class. And uh, so I was not uh, very fortunate uh, at the end. And you have to know, when I had the diploma, the same year of uh, composition and uh, conducting, and uh, composition, I had uh, almost the highest possible um, uh, vote, yes? yes? So the maximum yeah. is 10. I, I don't remember, I had 9.8. Wow. So and uh, and when I asked uh, why uh, I could not uh, receive a ten, and they answered me, well, uh, this conservatorium is named by Giuseppe Verdi. <laughs> I don't think you can have a, a, a ten. Yeah. But uh, for conducting, I think I, I received a, a mere eight point twenty five, something like this. Mm. So actually, the conservatorio saw in me better a composer rather than a. a uh, a conductor. Yeah, yeah. Um, leaving the, uh, there, uh, how did you? What were your first steps into the conducting world uh, as a freelancer? Were they more symphonic than opera, or more opera than symphonic? How how did you first take your first steps into the profession? Well, the the very 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 first uh, contract which uh, made me extremely proud with uh, was with a, a, a small chamber orchestra in Milano mm -hmm. called Angelicum, Angelicum and uh, mm, it was uh, a concert with Handel music, uh, dances from Alcina and something like this. And I remember that the concertmaster of this Angelicum was also uh, the concertmaster of La Scala Theatre. Mm. And uh, I perfectly remember that... Uh, um, they asked me to conduct this concert, but I understood why they asked me to conduct this concert, because uh, this concert master, he almost uh, uh, um, navigated and uh, <laughs> claimed the tempi for everything. So yeah. I had just to follow the concert master and get paid. Yeah. <laughs> and which was a, a very good deal for me, because I could put my name for the first time into a, a, a small symphonic uh, season, so that uh, a little bit later I, conduct, I conducted another um, Milano uh, chamber orchestra, which is, uh, is still there, I Pomeriggi Musicali. And uh, then I did the big step to conduct the Christmas concert with the Maggio Musicale Fiorentino in Florence, which mm. was, which uh, actually really helped me to enter uh, in 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 a immediately in a quite a good quality territory. Yes, uh, mm. uh, conducting. And then I started the, the first thing of, of opera also in um, small theatres like Pavia, like uh, Ascoli Piceno, probably these are cities which don't ring any bell uh, to you. But, you know, I, I, I often say that probably I'm uh, uh, the last, uh, uh, well, not the last conductor, but for my generation, probably the last conductor who did uh, 
still the career in the old uh, style yeah. step by step by step by step by step mm. by step rather than jumping in immediately with the uh, big opera houses which uh, actually um i i'm very proud about it mm. because i feel uh, extremely solid on what i do so yeah. and, and nothing is by chance uh, nothing is uh, crossing fingers of course <laughs> we are musicians we cross fingers yeah. always but you know what i mean yes yeah, uh, absolutely yeah. i mean what's interesting is is it's not really come up on the podcast before you talk about these small town opera houses in italy i'm a uh, we go on holiday every year to abruzzo my family and i and um uh, but i also i've toured there with uh, a local birmingham orchestra and we went on a tour there about six or seven years ago and two of the venues there's an opera house in chieti there's an opera house in ortona and and places like that they're dotted across italy and they're wonderful little venues i mean even where where we stayed in vazzo the vasto there's a tiny little opera house there um yeah, and and, yeah. and you, you walk out of there or, go to conduct these concerts in these tiny places and think well somebody must come in here and do opera or concerts all of the time i wonder who's doing that but now i know that you know that that's correct but by the way now uh, uh, you you remind me you spoke about central italy uh, small opera houses another opera houses where i started to conduct when i was 26 it was spoleto not spoleto the festival the famous festival but uh, they were doing a very small tiny Mm, uh, opera season September November and I conducted in in uh, Spoleto after the glamour of yes. the <laughs> summer uh, festival and I was 26 and uh, uh, and then uh, I remember there it was a, a contemporary opera probably this is one of the, your next uh, questions if I anticipate please tell me but of course uh, uh, when I was uh, 26 27 28 a good half of my repertoire was contemporary opera because mm. actually I was conducting what uh, the good conductors didn't want to conduct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, I was uh, entering, let's say, in the music world through this uh, uh, type of uh, engagement. Well, I, I am going to come to opera and programming when I talk about Chicago uh, in a little while. Um, but I did want to touch on one place where you uh, you were there for four years as artistic and music artistic director and music director at the Cantieri Inci in oh, I'll say that again Cantieri Internazionale d'Arte in Multipulciano, which is basically means international art workshop. It was something set up by the composer Hans Werner Henser in 1976, and it sounds like a sort of summer camp. Am I right there? Um, uh, for uh, it sounds like a no, fascinating no, it's a, place. It's a real, it's, it's a real festival. Yeah. Uh, you see, I just mentioned the Spoleto. Yeah. Let's say that in some way Montepulciano was the anti-Spoleto. Spoleto okay. was uh, uh, the place for the stars, for the glamour, for the fashion, uh, this connection US, Italy, and so. And Montepulciano was uh, the anti-Spoleto, very humble. The, the festival was uh, created by the people of uh, uh, Montepulciano with the artists who were not paid, but uh, who participated to a sort of a mass pedagogical uh, action in the to the to the city yeah. for to the citizen to the people of Montepulciano, you have to uh, not forget that Hans Werner Henze, who 
literally hand, handed me, gave me the, the direction of the festival. He was uh, uh, a person uh, with uh, uh, very left-wing uh, um, thoughts yeah. and uh, concepts, yes? So, uh, like, uh, the music is for everybody, everybody has the right to be an artist on stage, that we, professional artists, we have the moral obligation to uh, give our, pass our experience for free to everyone. And uh, saying this, I, I, I told you which are the fundamentals of this uh, Montepulciano festival. So, yeah. it was, uh, the chorus was from uh, an amateur chorus, uh, the orchestra was uh, a youth, uh, youth orchestra. By the way, the youth orchestra was uh, the orchestra from the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester, okay. which I invited yeah. during five years, and we, uh, we created a very strong link Manchester-Montepulciano. And uh, I don't know, great artists like Alessandro Corbelli, like uh, Luciana Serra and uh, Franca Valeri, they came to Montepulciano because they were friends. Of course, we, we were given them a very beautiful uh, country house with a swimming pool and uh, <laughs> uh, breakfast, uh, lunch, dinner for free in the best Montepulciano restaurants. I mean, it was a sort of a paid holiday in exchange of being at the festival. Yeah, so these yeah. were five uh, unbelievable years for me because uh, uh, in the office of uh, the Montepulciano festival, there were two people, me and my secretary. So meaning that... Uh, I had literally to do all the schedule planning, all the travels, all the invitation, everything. Yeah. And uh, that's why I had to move actually from Milano to Montepulciano. And uh, actually, that's why today, if I claim uh, uh, a residency in, in Italy, it's still Montepulciano. If yeah. I go back to Italy sometimes, it's, I go back to Montepulciano, it's where I have my friends uh, and uh, my people, really. And uh, actually, if uh, today I'm a music director of a major opera house, I, I can say it's also because uh, I have been uh, uh, the, 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 yes, the factotum of uh, such a beautiful and interesting uh, festival. Well, let's go straight there. Uh, I'm uh, I'm going to jump ahead. Uh, after a step, well, your principal guest conductor of Deutsche Oper Berlin, but on July the 1st, just over a month ago, you became the new music director of the Lyric Opera in Chicago. Um, I'm going to ask you a big question here. Um, first of all, let's look in the ideal world. You just talked about new music, new opera, contemporary opera. Programming in the future, are you looking to introduce quite a lot of contemporary opera to Chicago or more than they've had before? But also, I'm sure, as we discussed before I press record, you've been on plenty of meetings with Chicago via Zoom about what's coming up. What's a post-COVID lyric opera looking like? Uh, I'm sure you're discussing this already, um, looking forward in the future. So what's post-COVID going to be like and, and, and what sort of programming are you looking to, to do in Chicago? 
Well, uh, first of all, the post-COVID reopening is a very special uh, reopening because uh, Lyric Opera of Chicago is going to reopen after 16, I, I really didn't count, 16, 18 months of uh, yeah. uh, silence, yeah. of uh, nothing. Of course, uh, uh, probably you all know that uh, uh, American opera houses are not uh, government or state uh, yeah. or city fund funded, yes? So actually all opera um, houses in uh, US have a very big deficit. Yes. And uh, uh, in some way, uh, Lyric Opera next season uh, is a little bit reduced mm. uh, just uh, to uh, be sure that we can compensate in uh, in uh, in some way, but at the same time without uh, losing uh, a very strong uh, uh, personality. So I, I prepare this uh, br brochure, uh, the new brochure for uh, next season. We have uh, a new uh, Macbeth. Mm -hmm. We have uh, the Elixir of Love. Uh, we have a uh, Magic Flute uh, in the Comische Oper uh, Berrikowski uh, staging. Then uh, we have uh, uh, Catan's Florencia and the Amazonas. Then we have uh, um, uh, Missy Mazzoli's Proving Up. Then we have a Tosca. Then we have Blanchard's Fire Shut Up in My Bones, which is a co-production with uh, um, uh, Metropolitan uh, of New York. And then we have a symphonic concert with Sir Andrew Davies conducting Beethoven 9. Yeah. So you see we have a, a big variety of things. And uh, in some way there are I would say, for my arrival, two strong, uh, uh, or I would say three, or almost four strong uh, informations, <laughs> yeah. messages yeah. in this uh, uh, programmation. The first, we start with two Italian operas. There is nothing yeah. to do. There is a new Italian music director. Of course, after many, many, many years of uh, uh, having been called uh, uh, a, a bel canto specialist, it's very natural for me to run into Verdi repertoire in this moment. So the core of my repertoire in yeah. the next years will be Verdi and Verdi and Verdi. Second is that uh, there are three contemporary operas, Florencia and the Amazonas, Proving Up, and Fire Shut Up in My Bones. Yeah. And uh, this is uh, really a very brave message, a message of uh, uh, modernity, a message of... Uh, our desire to see uh, and to invest in a new generation of uh, uh, composers. Mm. And this is a very important uh, message. We spoke about contemporary opera, you know how important it is uh, yeah. uh, for me. The, the third message is that uh, for an American opera house, we have also operas in uh, different languages. Yes, so we have Italian, we have the magic flute in German, Florencia is in Spanish. This is very important for all uh, uh, different uh, communities and the proving up and fire shut up in my bones are in English. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the fourth message is uh, uh, the variety of uh, repertoire. Yes, starting from let's say a classic uh, period like the magic flute. We go magic flute. We go to uh, a contemporary opera like Missy Mazzoli's proving uh, proving up. So this is a little bit what this. Uh, new season represents for us. It's very important. We are waiting everybody with uh, open arms. It's my first season as uh, music director and uh, it's very, very, very important step in my artistic life. Well, bravo you. And, and it sounds like it's been a, quite a long time planning during 
lockdown uh, and the pandemic. And um, it sounds like a wonderful season. It's a shame I don't live in Chicago, otherwise I'd be there. Um, what that does mean, though, is that you, I mean, and this is a topic that's come up quite often on the podcast with conductors who work in opera. I mean, you were for six years the artistic director and music director of the Orchestra National Deal de France. So you've worked in symphonic field, and I know you conduct symphonically. Go because you're just starting in Chicago. There's obviously a lot of administration, bureaucracy, meetings, all of that, and then of course opera productions take six, eight, ten weeks to produce. How much symphonic work in the in the next season or going ahead do you think you might do? Will you stick with old friends or will you be trying to uh, meet new orchestras? How do you see the future, or at least the next couple of years, working symphonically for you? Well, Mike, uh, you know that uh, in our conductor life, there are cycles yes. in a way. So yeah. I've been, uh, I have been seven years the music director of Orchestre National d'Ile de France, and I had this immense privilege of uh, uh, having a residency in the Philharmonie uh, of uh, Paris, which yeah. is a, one of the most uh, unbelievable halls in Europe today. The acoustic is uh, perfect. Yeah. And um, uh, in some way, yes, it were, it were seven years in which actually I conducted more symphonic repertoire than, uh, than uh, opera. So uh, now I'm starting a new cycle in my life in which necessarily being a, a lyric opera, I will conduct more opera than uh, symphonic. Yeah. But, you know, mm, I, I repeat, it's a cycles. Yeah. And uh, being in the US is also the good moment uh, um, to start uh, to uh, have uh, new friends in US, for example, yeah. uh, with uh, new orchestras. Last uh, December, I did my debut with Detroit Symphony, for example. I will be this uh, October with Utah Symphony. And uh, of course, the next uh, natural step is to know American orchestras. Mm. Well, it also leads on to another thing to do with America. You mentioned it. No central government funding. Uh, and as a music director of a symphony orchestra, but also as an opera house, I'm assuming you need to get into that mindset and into that role of speaking to donors, speaking to philanthropists, speaking to people who donate money to you, going and pressing the flesh, as they call it, having dinners, receptions, parties. Uh, I'm assuming you've probably got a long social diary, well, social slash business diary uh, over the next six, 12 months, that t meeting people who've been donating to the Lyric Opera for 20, 30 years that you have to meet as the music director. Are you looking forward to that? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, you say the next six months. I think the next the next uh, five years actually <laughs> I have to be engaged in this type yeah. of uh, uh, meetings. You know, um, I'm. Uh, how can I say? Mm, sorry if I say this in UK. I'm uh, profoundly European. I feel I'm uh, a very European uh, uh, product, if you want. Yes, uh, meaning. Uh, that uh, I grew up uh, in uh, Europe uh, and uh, I know how music in Europe uh, works. Yeah. And uh, of course, uh, when I first uh, uh, arrived in US, I discovered completely a new world for music. It's really, it works really in a different uh, uh, way. But uh, 
At the same time, when you think that uh, uh, the music life depends by uh, this uh, beautiful, strong, unique uh, group of uh, generous people who mm. really want to be involved in the artistic life of uh, the institution they they support well it becomes so interesting because you start to exchange um, information time but also you know a coffee in a, in a break of a rehearsal and uh, actually in this moment i tell you one thing in this moment i have already many 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 more friends in chicago than i had in seven years in paris yeah, yeah. because in seven years in paris i had the orchestra but then uh, Our boss was the president of the region Ile-de-France, Madame Pécresse, uh, whom I met, of course, uh, sometimes, but uh, of course I had not a, a direct uh, uh, relation. And uh, here, uh, with the donors uh, of Lyric Opera, I have dinners, I have telephone calls, uh, we meet uh, outside the Lyric Opera for a brief uh, chat, I go to their offices and maybe we have a burger in the office together. I mean... Um, in a way, they become your friends, they become your family. Your, yeah. And this is very beautiful, I have, I have to say. I'm trying, I'm, trying, I'm trying to see what is beyond uh, business, you understand? Yes. I, yeah. I, I, believe, I believe that uh, when you really think about it, they are the fundaments on which our uh, US institutions are based. Yeah. And uh, these fundaments uh, require attention, uh, love, dedication. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's something I feel passionately about. I mean, it happens it happens in the UK, but it's 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 on a friendship basis and there you know, there's no financial I mean, you know, they may pay to be in a certain circle of friends in in an orchestra, say in Birmingham or in Manchester. But what it does is it means that you you spread your tentacles spread through the city and it and the orchestra or the opera house becomes part of the city and the city are proud of it and want to be involved with it. And it and it, this symbiotic relationship, rather than being this place in the middle of the city that some people feel they can go to or not. It should be for everybody. Uh, and uh, by having relationships as a music director with your funders, but also your supporters and your friends, uh, and not just, you know, um, the, the odd handshake here and there, but really speaking to them, I think it, it helps uh, really get the arts institutions set in the city and not feel that it's just for the elite. It's for everybody. And I think it's really important. Um, I, you know, uh, I, I would embrace the chance to uh, have that role with an orchestra in the US where you, you know, you go and speak to people and yeah, and, and become part of the city and become friends with people quickly. And, and yeah, it's important. There's a question that I've asked every conductor, and you will be no different, um, and it's about score preparation. When you come to learn a score, do you sit at the piano or do you use your inner ear at your desk? And the other thing that conducting students and I find fascinating is, are you a writer in your score? Do you use red, blue, black? Do you use marker pens, uh, highlighters, or do you write nothing in your scores at all? 
and just keep them blank? How do you do it? Um, when I study and prepare my scores, well, in general, I, I sit, uh, yes, I, I try to have a very open wide table so that I can open usually opera scores, especially the critical editions are quite big yes. scores. Yeah. And uh, um, very often I need to run to the piano to check a note, to check a, a, a harmony, which is uh, something absolutely necessary. But uh, uh, yes, in general, in general, I tend to visualize the score in uh, my mind. And uh, I uh, usually I use uh, just uh, a normal pencil, no colored uh, okay. pencil. And I, uh, in general, keep uh, my scores as blank as possible. Yeah. So I really try to minimize my intervention in the score because I'm such a lover of uh, the, how can I say, genuine, spontaneous uh, gesture of the composer I have to conduct that um, I really don't want to add too much, if not maybe a sign of attention for uh, a special uh, instrument uh, who requires a specific cue in a moment yeah. just just for this but i tend I, ta- I i tend to be very transparent and clean in my scores it, it's it's interesting that you know we're episode numbers well into the 80s now um and i would say it's probably just about 50 50 between those like myself who i find my best way of learning it is to write many things in the score try not to obscure too much but it's neat and tidy and then people like yourself who write very little uh, and do it in a different way i it, what it proves is that we all have our own system uh, and there is no one way of doing it um but yeah it's it, i people find it fascinating that you know we spend you know i remember when i stopped playing the violin professionally uh, and i think my family thought i would be have a lot more free time I didn't because I spent most of it in this room learning scores. You know, that's the point. Uh, you spend so much more time learning scores. I just went to bed earlier than I used to. That's the only difference. Um, but yeah, it's, it's. I find it a fascinating topic. Are you fascinated by conductors and conducting? And would you like to know even more? Well, you can find out all sorts of secrets, tips, opinions, and much more on my Patreon page. You can hear interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting. You can read my diaries when I go on guest conducting trips, such as this week when I've been conducting in Germany. You can take part in group meetings with other like-minded conducting fans. You can read articles on conducting and conductors and you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium and from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest Enrique Mazzola. Enrique, it's come to that time of the interview where I ask the all-important 10 questions that everybody's probably been waiting for. Um, and I start, the first two come as one. What sound or noise do you love? And what sound or noise do you hate? Love uh, bells. Oh. Yes. Distant uh, countryside bells. Yeah. Oh, this is my favourite uh, sound. And uh, 
what I don't like is the uh, constant, uh, uh, not disturbing, but uh, is always there noise when we have long, uh, um, long uh, flights. Oh, yes. So there yeah. is engine sound mm, always there. This I really hate because I, I don't know. It's like uh, it puts me inside a different tonality in my life. And yeah. I hate something to alter the tonality of my brain, you know, mm. in some way. This mm. deserves me a lot. And what, what what's interesting about that is the wonders of modern headphones with noise cancelling and all of that. But that all that that takes that gets rid of the engine noise, but it doesn't actually change your state of mind because the sound of inside noise cancelling headphones is a different tonality, and it, it becomes almost oppressive. But, uh, yeah. but it helps. Of course, it helps. <laughs> it helps a lot. Yeah. I, I, I assure you, I'm a specialist about uh, noise cancelling headphones. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, maybe that'll be the, one of the answers to one of the later questions. We'll see. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Just uh, hiking shoes and uh, walk and uh, explore. Yeah. I, I love. Uh, Walking, I love very much. It's something which put me in a very positive, calm state of mind. And in a way, you know, uh, we conductors, we are never focused in only one project. Yes, we yeah. conduct one opera. At the same time, uh, we study more two operas and maybe another symphony. And uh, walking helps me to put... Uh, uh, everything inside the correct box, if you yeah. want, yeah. And, and, what, and what I find interesting, and maybe you're different, um, when I'm away, I mean, I, what's just jumped into my brain is often when I'm uh, in a city like Buenos Aires, a place I've been to maybe once every 18 months for the last 10 years, there's a walk I love to do in Buenos Aires, and it's a big city. It's a modern, noisy city. But just walking is, is something that can clear my mind and I can look at the architecture and I can immerse myself in the place. I don't have to be in the woods or the country or on mountains or anything like that. Just the walk is good enough for me. Are you the same? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, I, I'm the same. I like uh, mm, to get lost in big cities, yeah. especially without Google Maps. Yeah. <laughs> and this is very important. So that I really can explore what is completely unexpected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, a lovely word I heard on a TV programme back here in the UK for people who meander, which just, you know, means aimlessly walking. And they, they like to be known as meanderthals, which I think was, is a wonderful word. You know, people who just wander around the city and discover things and there's not going in any uh, specific direction. Uh, number four, who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Well, in some way, I already answered. So my two big uh, love when I was a kid, but also if you want the conductors who really created my, um, how can I say, my joy of becoming a conductor were Claudio Abbado and Carlos Kleiber. Uh -huh. So with uh, both, I really sang many times in uh, La Scala. I remember that with Carlos Kleiber, I did uh, this uh, magnificent first tour of La Scala in Japan. It was 1981. Mm. I was doing Otello 
and uh, uh, Bohème with Carlos Kleiber. So um, really a special love, but also when you, you listen to the Brahms IV yeah. of uh, Kleiber, the famous uh, Deutsche Grammophon recording, I mean, it's uh, really unique. And uh, in general, for all the rest of the repertoire, I, I listen uh, to the Abbado versions for uh, all uh, the Verdi uh, repertoire, but also for a lot of uh, Mahler and Tchaikovsky and Brahms. Yeah. Yes. Maybe you can uh, tell me, maybe you don't know, but it's, it's often said about Kleiber, by the way, Kleiber is the most regular answer to that question from all of the conductors, as you can well imagine. He is most people's favourite of yesteryear. But when it's often said that when he went to Japan, he was at his happiest because it was a place where he, he felt he could make music to people who really appreciated him. Did you notice his attitude when you were there touring in Japan was different? Did he seem a happier person? Um, what can you say? I, I really cannot say because, I mean, I was not uh, spending my time with uh, Carlos yeah. Kleiber. I mean, I was uh, uh, watching uh, Maestro Kleiber only when uh, I was singing the second act of uh, Bohème. And, uh, you know, for the kids, second act means uh, open eyes, be careful, be in tempo. It's a, a difficult uh, difficult moment for the children chorus. So actually I was thinking sincerely everything but uh, anything about the state of mind of Maestro Kleiber. Yeah. Nevertheless, I can say that um, also he became one of the, my favorites because I remember him always with this sort of, uh, um, uh, I use the Italian word, the leggerezza in the in the conducting and with this um, half smile yeah. in the face, which made uh, all things from complicated to easy, actually. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, fascinating. Uh, I find anybody who worked with him, uh, well, basically, I think you're very lucky. <laughs> um, yeah, there are two or three conductors I wished I'd seen live conduct or worked for or played for, and he obviously is going to be one of those. Now, question number five. Some conductors find this very difficult. Um, Daniel Harding said that he thinks this question is cruel, and at least one conductor has refused to answer this question. And this question is, who would be a favourite current conductor? Well, there is no reason to not uh, answer uh, this uh, question. Um, uh, actually, uh, it's very difficult because there are many, many, many good uh, conductors in the world. Of course, I think uh, mm, I want to mention my uh, teacher, Daniele Gatti, because mm -hmm. actually, uh, despite uh, uh, being for uh, the brief uh, period I was his student, uh, a very bad student, actually, <laughs> I, learned, uh, I learned a lot uh, from Daniele. And uh, Daniele is really a perfectionist. Uh, he has a, a very beautiful uh, gesture, Alitaliana, very generous, very, um, how can I say, elegant also gesture, uh, yeah. which is a, a little bit uh, also a signature of uh, the Italian uh, school. Yes, Abbado and then Daniele and then Muti. And uh, um, I like very much the work uh, Yannick Nesesegen has done uh, 
with uh, uh, Philadelphia and with the uh, Metropolitan Opera. He's really able to inspire uh, the artistic groups he's working with in the best way, and he's really making a, a great work. Um, um, another conductor I like very much for uh, how serious and focused he is is Fabio Luisi. Mm-hmm. And uh, I uh, met uh, I met Fabio uh, in uh, Zurich, and uh, I like uh, very much this uh, connection between a, a very big discipline of work and at the same time this beautiful Italianità that uh, he expresses expresses when uh, he conducts. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Well, I think. Uh, it was uh, the desert music by Steve Reich. It's uh, uh, an extremely uh, complicated uh, piece. Uh, I, I really don't remember how long. Probably is it 30, 40 minutes long, but even uh, even more maybe. And uh, the fact is that uh, uh, in the complication of all the chains of uh, tempo, there is never a stop. Never stop. So you you never have a possibility to calm your brain or to settle your brain saying, okay, now I'm sure that uh, I'm not in a 716 uh, bar. So, and uh, I remember that when I finished uh, this piece, I was really, really exhausted. It, it It's worth saying, and I'm sure you would agree with me, virtually every piece we conduct... If I use the analogy of riding a horse, virtually every piece we conduct, there are moments when we can just sit and enjoy the ride. We're not having to control the horse. We're just looking at the view because we're we're not actually needed that much for some moments in music making. The pieces that are difficult are like an, an Olympic show jumping where you're in control of the horse every step, jump here, turn left, turn right, <laughs> jump again, two jumps over the water. They're the most difficult pieces to conduct, aren't they? Whereas most of the time we can just sit on the horse, the orchestra, and just enjoy it a lot of the time. I think it's a very good analogy. <laughs> <laughs> well, therefore, desert music sounds like, um, it sounds like Olympic show jumping, so maybe I won't be going there. <laughs> When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, actually, um, you know that I always conduct with uh, red eyeglasses, yes? So in my... I didn't know they were always red. Yes, always red. So in my suitcase, I have a second pair of red eyeglasses. (laughs) Ah, well, there we are. Um, Well, I think... Obviously, very, very, very important. Um, why always red? Is that was that a decision from years ago, and now you can't change, or is it just your favorite color? Mm, it happened. It happened. Uh, it was many, many years ago, maybe mm, seventeen, eighteen years ago, when I had to change a pair of eyeglasses which I have broken just before a concert, and the only available uh, frames. Uh, I found were red and then I started to use these uh, red eyeglasses and then I remember uh, when uh, I received a review here in Glyndebourne I think in 2011 probably and uh, and, or in 13 and uh, Financial Times was uh, writing uh, and uh, Enrique Mazzola with uh, his uh, 
trademark uh, uh, red uh, eyeglasses. And there I thought, okay, it's time to never <laughs> change anymore my red eyeglasses. Oh, well, once it becomes a trademark, that's it. Yeah, you're, 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 there's no way you can change. <laughs> what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Well, sometimes I think uh, that uh, the rituals of the concert and opera, of course, uh, performances are uh, a little bit uh, too old-fashioned. Mm. So I, I personally don't see anything wrong in conducting uh, a concert in uh, jeans and uh, sneakers. <laughs> of course, there is a, a strong opposition because uh, a lot of people say, okay, but uh, I, want, I, I pay a ticket and I would like to see a ritual in, yeah. in some way. So actually... What I try to imagine for the future that is that probably there are half ways also to, to change these rituals. But also it's not about only the jeans and sneakers, but also for the fact, for example, that, for example, very often when I conduct a contemporary piece in, uh, in uh, symphonic concerts, I just turn to the audience and I explain them why I commissioned this piece to this composer, what uh, the composer wanted to say with this piece, with, which were the difficulties for the orchestras, and uh, why they cannot recognize a normal theme like uh, in a Vivaldi yeah. piece. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I really... And uh, um, you see, in some way, is something which uh, still today sounds quite extravagant, yes, of the conductor turning to the... Uh, audience, but uh, it breaks in some way this ritual of uh, silence and uh, mystery which accompanies every uh, concert. So this is something I really would like to change in the future. Well, I have to say I recently conducted some concerts in Birmingham with the CBSO and due to COVID regulations and, and the orchestra changing seating, there was a gap that they wanted me to fill. And so I spoke to the audience about the symphony I was about to conduct. I felt it really helped the performance. I felt it really helped the audience understand it. And I think it'll be something I'll be doing more of. Um, I understand also where you are about, you know, um, concerts in street clothes versus concerts in, in concert clothing. Because, yeah, as you said, some people pay the money to go. It's show business in the end. They, they go to see the men dressed in tails, the ladies dressed in their long black. Um, whereas I think other people couldn't care less. They've gone to listen to the music and probably sit there with their eyes shut anyway. So if we can find a way of, of, of uh, keeping both sides happy, wouldn't that be wonderful? So, yeah, I, brilliant answer. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? There are two professions I always uh, imagined I would have loved to, to do, apart uh, conductor. So the first is uh, pilot. Uh -huh. The pilot in, the, yeah. in a big uh, airline company, yes, in Air France, Delta, or whatever. So this uh, thing, uh, which is actually very, 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 very close to conducting, yes? You have a huge responsibility for a lot of people, and uh, you are called to take uh, 
important decisions to major issues in uh, a microsecond. Yes. Exactly like a, a conductor. The big difference is that, uh, of course, our decisions are not going to save uh, the lives of uh, uh, 2,000 people of the audience. Uh, the pilot decision is going to, to save the life of uh, actually two, three hundred people in the in the. Uh, in the airplane. But at the same time, I think that we conductors have this responsibility to, if not to save the lives, to cuddle the souls of the people are coming to listen to our concerts. So it's a, it's a really a responsibility. The second profession is, uh, uh, it's not very clear the idea, but something like a rock star. <laughs> I, I mean, really, really, Work, work, yeah, 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 yeah. I know that is not a good answer, but uh, I mean, this fact of uh, be able to go to the heart of the people through a different type of music really always uh, uh, triggered a, a very subtle interest in my mind. Mm. Uh, because I'm sure that we all in our classic music uh, world, we are missing something. We are for sure missing something uh, and mm. Uh, mm, this uh, obligation of uh, keeping so high walls between uh, uh, classic music and uh, jazz and pop and rock uh, mm, actually divide the different uh, music communities rather than reunite the, the communities so there is something there is a part of me which uh, uh, has a, a heart beating in the pop and the rock music and uh, in this necessity to have a big audiences also for our classic music. I, I always say and I always try to convince everyone that uh, classic music actually is pop music, yeah. is popular music, is mm -hmm. music which can go in the heart of everyone. So yeah. there is something to work and to do, we all. Well... You're the first person in eight, over 80 interviews to say they'd like to have been a rock or pop star. You are. You may not be surprised to know this, but you're not the first person to say you wanted to be an airline pilot. Um, all the way back to episode one, I think Andrew Litton said he wanted to be an airline pilot, and there have been many since. But rock and pop star, you win. First person ever. <laughs> um, and the final question. If the world were to end tonight... What would be your choice of final meal and drink? Well, for me, it's uh, very easy. I'm so connected and in love with my people in Montepulciano, Tuscany, that uh, probably would be a very beautiful Fiorentina. If you don't know what is a Fiorentina, it's like a, a very uh, thick uh, steak, which is quite big. I mean, I, usually two or three people can eat uh, yeah. uh, it. And uh, with a, uh, a fantastic glass of Vino Nobile di Montepulciano, which is our wine in the city of Montepulciano. Wonderful choice. I do know exactly what a Fiorentina steak is, and I love Italian red wine. Um, Enrique, I've loved the last hour. It's been wonderful. Really enjoyed chatting to you. And I hope at some point in the future, if only over a glass of Montepulciano red wine, we meet and have another chat. With pleasure. You know, you know that I mentioned this because I am the ambassador of Vino Nobile di Montepulciano. Ah, oh, well, there, there we, we must have a glass of that then. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. For sure. 
A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a conductor who is a double competition winner. He won the Donatella Flick competition in 2008 and the Nestle and Salzburg Festival Young Conductors Award in 2010. Since 2014, he's held a position with the Orchestra y Coro Nacional de España, becoming chief conductor and artistic advisor there in 2019. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>